Welcome to episode four of Black Woman Voices. This week, we're going to be tackling racism and diversity positions in higher education. Our guest this week is Tierney Thurman, a student affairs leader and diversity and inclusion educator with a resume that spans over nearly a decade in large and small university settings. She is a nationally board certified counselor and a licensed graduate professional counselor in the state of Maryland. Paying homage to her ancestral roots and honoring the nickname Firstborn given to her by her father, the, evol- the evolution of her work in education and mental health led to the creation of the Idaltu Counseling and Consulting. Idaltu's practices entail person-centered healing, community advocacy, and leadership training. She currently serves one of the largest community colleges in the state of Maryland as the coordinator for Inclusive Excellence. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Tierney, to the podcast. It's a joy and a delight to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. And so my first question is, how did you get to where you are now? That is such a beautiful question. So a little bit about myself. Um, I'm a first-generation college student. Um, When I was preparing for college, um, my mom and dad were super supportive and really eager, but they didn't have the tools or the resources to assist me with that. So I was one of those kids that filled out the FAFSA on my own, searched for schools on my own, scheduled my own college tours, and just kind of told my parents to show up. And um, I landed at Savannah State University, which is the the, the, HBCU, a historically black college. And I attribute a lot of my identity to God, my parents, and Savannah State. So I was an incredibly active student at Savannah State University, and then I became Miss Savannah State, was really involved in SGA, so on and so forth. And um, the initial skepticism around my parents even encouraging Savannah State was that it was a historically black college. So this whole notion of, is it going to prepare you for the quote-unquote real world? And um, it did that plus a million things more. So with that, with the work that I did at Savannah State and the outreach and the scholarship, I ended up going to graduate school and pursuing a master's in counseling. But the beautiful part about me being in graduate school was that I landed a job working at a university that allowed me to be an admissions counselor, and I specialized in minority recruitment. Because of my background at a historically black college, because of my leadership skills, um, so I took this job as an admissions counselor, as a recruiter, traveled the state of Georgia, talking to students about preparing for college. And what I began to realize was that there's this issue around access. And at the time, I was, I think was, I was 22 or 23 years old. So this whole language around equitable access didn't even exist at the time. Well, to me, it didn't. But got really involved in some national organizations and some state organizations surrounding um, minority access. And that just catapulted my career. I consistently worked with organizations on campus and in the community that were really making sure that students of color, particularly black students, were um, set up for success. So I ended up being an academic advisor, coordinator for recruitment. And when I finished my master's, which again is in counseling, I found that there was a great overlap in clinical mental health and higher education, particularly around multicultural counseling. Mm -hmm. So I knew that that was going to be my area, this whole idea of how do we make sure that counselors are cross-culturally competent? Um, So I took a job 
at a university in Arkansas and I became the director of the multicultural center at that time. And while there, being that I'm from Georgia, I think many people will compare um, Arkansas to Georgia. Like, well, they're both in the South, aren't they? There was a level of poverty that I'd never been exposed to um, with students coming from the, the Delta of Arkansas. So um, I took a position in Arkansas, and that's when I was exposed to a completely different level of um, diversity work because I was beginning to do a lot of work around poverty, particularly students of color and white students that were coming from highly impoverished areas. It was to the point that if it rained, students could not come to school because they lived there in their mobile homes. It would cause mudslides. Wow. Um, so my experience at Arkansas State was short-lived, but it was quite critical and vital to my, my career exploration. And even while there, I began to really pay a lot more attention to immigration and politics around immigration, because it was around the time where Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, these were states that were suing the federal government for this, um, because they were being required to enact DACA. So there was this need that they were like, we don't, we want our students who are undocumented to pay out-of-state tuition. So we had a lot of students that were undocumented and were half-time or part-time. But later on, I moved to another university. So my, my work has just become deeper and deeper in um, diversity work. But it moved from working with students to now training faculty and staff at my current community college, where I serve as the coordinator for inclusive excellence. So along the, along the way, um, this work has... The way I like to describe it is this, this work is heart work and it's hard work. Yes. And, and I think it's so, I'm so connected to it because I'm the subject and the object of this work, right? Mm -hmm. I'm black. I'm a woman. I'm a first generation college student. Um, I was pale eligible. Um, and, you know, and you know, that list of quote unquote at risk. Um, but I like to say um, at potential, high, high potential. Right. But um, so those are some of the things that have been quite near and dear to me because of being the subject and the object of this work. So you, you mentioned attending an HBCU for your undergrad and then <clears throat> moving on to what we would call predominantly white or historically white institutions. And you said something that stuck out to me. Uh, so I've only been at um, PWIs for my education, but I've been at an HBCU working for over eight years now. And one of the things that comes up in conversation is, does the HBCU setting prepare me for the real world? Mm. <laughs> you know? And so just given your experience as um, an alumna of HBCU, how has it prepared you? And what, why do you think people have that question of, would it prepare me for the real world? Right. Well, I think the question about, um, will it prepare you for the real world is deeply rooted in racism. Right. This whole notion that um, color black people are inferior to that of whites and that our educational systems are inferior as well. I mean, even we just think about the founding of many of these schools, Savannah State University, like many HBCUs in the South, was founded on a land grant. Right. And if you ever get a chance to visit Savannah State, it is waterfront property. It's on the marshlands. So when the school was founded, there was no intention for the, the state to really keep the school up because it's it was in an area that's, I mean, mosquitoes will carry you away. Um, uh, it's hot. It's humid. It's, again, it's marshland. So this idea, well, how do you even create stable infrastructure in this space? Um, but so there's that, that, that notion of internalized racism. That's why people think, well, 
Is it going to prepare me? Am I going to be successful post-degree? Now, I have to say this. One of the things that I think HBCUs have a tendency to do is that they overcompensate. You come in completely understanding that you are black. The world doesn't always see you or see us as equal. Therefore, you must show up and show out anytime you can. Wow. And so when I was in class, I I step back for a moment. Savannah State at the time had a program called Dress for Success Wednesdays. So every single Wednesday, no matter how hot it was, you were in a suit. You were in you were in pantyhose. You were in heels. You were in a button down and a blazer. And the culture was so much dedicated to your success. I mean, it was so dedicated to your success that if I saw a classmate that did not have on dress for success attire, it was, it was my duty to say, do you want to borrow some of my clothes next week? Do you want to, do you want to go to New York and company? Me and my girlfriends are going this weekend. Do you want to go to old Navy? Wow. Um, That was a huge part of our identity. And that, that, that sense of familia, it, it felt like home. It created this connection to not only the college, but it, it created a deeper connection to quote unquote, my people. Like it was like the, the familiar was palpable. And another way I would describe the HBCU experience with it being familiar. When you, when I particularly would go into classrooms, I didn't think of Dr. Johnson as this high mighty individual that I couldn't have a relationship with. I looked at him or looked at her as an aunt or an uncle. So I wanted to make sure that I impressed and that I stood out and that I made my aunt or uncle proud. So there's a a great sense of esteem and accomplishment. And I learned a lot, a great deal about my blackness while while at HBCU. Right. So that leads me to um, this whole concept. When you talk about diversity, inclusion, equity, and how that looks, how that, how that looks at different institutions, uh, whether it's a minority serving institution, HBCU, predominantly white, private, public. In your experiences, have you seen the differences when you talk about those terms? Absolutely. Absolutely. So interestingly enough, when we talk about, sometimes in the broad scheme of things, when we talk about equity, people are like, we have to make it fair and equal for all. Well, when I think about AAC and U's definition of equity, and when I think about the, the, the definition of equity that we practice in my current job, it is about assisting historically disadvantaged students with gaining access. It is about creating opportunities for black and brown kids, for kids that are from impoverished, um, impoverished communities, for them to gain access to a system that wasn't designed for them. I don't want anyone who's listening to get it twisted, but it is not always about making it fair for everyone. We have to pay attention to those people who've never even got a, you know, have, they haven't even had a trail to the table, let alone had a seat at the table. So um, I, I think even some HBCUs are really starting to get, I don't want to say on the bandwagon, but they're, still, they're really starting to look at what diversity means for their particular population. So at some HBCUs, diversity is beginning to talk, um, look like, well, how do we get more um, women involved in STEM? Right. How, how do we um, ensure that our, our, our students from other racially marginalized communities are also being postured. We're also talking a lot about sexual orientation and gender identity when it comes to diversity on HBCU campuses. Mm. Now, 
<laughs> that mm. yeah, that's a big one. That is a that's, a, that's a big one because I mean, let's be honest. People of color, particularly black people, have struggled with that language, gender identity, sexual expression, sexual orientation, so on and so forth. But me being at the community college, um, this is my first time at a community college, by the way, and we serve 55,000 students. And when we think about community college, it is truly serving the community. So we have a number of traditional college age students from 18 to 24, a lot of non-traditional students who are degree seeking. And, but we're also in a, a community that's rural, but we're right, right outside the capital of Maryland, right outside the capital, which is Annapolis. So we talk a lot about, um, a lot about food disparities. So on our campus, we have a food pantry. We have a help link where students can ask for money for, they ask for fiscal resources because they can't have, they don't have gas in their car or um, they've been put out of their home and they need to find shelter for the evening. So it, it varies from so many different spaces. My job before I came to the community college was at a small private liberal arts Catholic university. Ooh, Ooh talk about that. What, what is Ooh. that experience? Ooh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it was the most challenging it was the most challenging career decision. It was, yeah, when, when you talk about character building exercises, that yes. was a university that, that like I was built from that fire. <laughs> I was built from that fire. So, I mean, just give you an example. When we think about the Catholic church, even if you don't know a lot about the Catholic church, even if you think about some of the, the notions that's, that have come out in the last few months about the Catholic church, um, whether that's, uh, inappropriate behavior with children, mm -hmm. um, the Catholic Church notion on same-sex marriage, um, but there's also a lot surrounding Catholic social teaching, which is this universalism that we treat all people with dignity and respect. However, we had a we had a lot of challenges surrounding race and racism on our campus, and I'm sure you all are familiar with like the whole concept of intent versus impact. Yes. We had a number of students from you know, highly affluent communities that, you know, were privileged their entire lives, that were, that making racist jokes was normal for them. And then you you get in a classroom with a kid from Baltimore that's just like, no, nah, nah, bruh. Like, <laughs> that ain't how we play. Right. <laughs> so I had, I, yeah, it was, it was a, it was challenging. It was extremely challenging to say the least. Yeah, I, I remember uh, my first um, uh, position in higher ed was at a small private church of the brethren. Mm. And so we had it like it was all residential, about 1,500 students. And when you combine faculty and staff together, there were like two black people that worked there. And I was one of them. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I get that. And you talk about students that have privilege because of their money and where they come from. And I'll never forget I had a I was I had a phone call from a mother saying, you know, I want my son moved because his roommate is uh gay. And I was like, Yeah, what do you I, I don't know what you want me to do. Yeah. And so it was very interesting that and then just like that, the ch the student was moved. Um, 
and it hit me by surprise because like I said, it was my first professional um, position. And I was just like, well, how are we supposed to engage and teach them about diversity and all these other things that they put really nice on their website, yet as soon as someone comes and complains, we change it. There's no education behind it. Not right. Right. I think there's a huge difference, though, especially when we talk about diversity. I think what a lot of institutions put on their website is a lot different than their practice. Yeah, I agree. Because diversity has become this like um, buzzword, like we are diverse, we have diverse, but then when you start to drill down into the data, Dr. K assessment, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, you're like, okay, but really your, your faculty and staff is not as diverse as it probably can be. And then your student population, while it may be diverse, there's still significant issues here and there. And then here you come, that person that is supposed to be the, you're the diversity champion on campus or you're one of them, especially, I don't even know how I would feel if it, if it were only two, two people, two black people on campus, and you automatically become, even if it's only, even if you have a center, you are the diversity people for that campus. And we yeah. were. Uh, yeah. I, was the, I was the assistant, and then there was a director, and I was also in housing, so, you know, small institutions, I was doing dual roles. So, yeah. It, it mm. was yeah. Yeah. And how, how, so I, I have a question around that. And because a lot of diversity roles, especially those at the director level, are black women. Mm -hmm. and, and my question is, why, why do you think that black women are looked at as or even chosen? And I don't want to say tokenized, but a little bit tokenized in these type of diversity roles or in diversity roles, period. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, you know, that's something I've actually had to sit down and talk to myself about because, I mean, I enjoy this work. This work is rewarding, but the work is also challenging. Um, and But I think we also live in a society where it's very easy for you to become um, pigeon-hailed. But I must be honest, I think diversity work, equity work is becoming more... Uh, more recognized, I hate to even say this, but more recognized as a, a viable and valuable asset because there are a number of skills that one must embody, must have to be able to be successful at this work. Um, I mean, there's a lot of research that talks about people of color, particularly black women, being um, exhausted by the demands placed upon them in an educational setting. Yes. So you may take a yes. job, yeah, you, you may take a job as, um, as a director, of a math department and before you know it it's you become the the mentor to the sorority you become yes. the advisor become the advisor to that to that black residence hall council hall mm -hmm. you become you become the the co-chair advisor of the yearbook committee because it's predominantly and you're like how did this happen to me but i think a lot of it too is I think it's it's institutionalized because there aren't a, there aren't enough of us on the campus. But I also think that there is this um, somewhat civic and emotional responsibility that we care as women. We we carry as women to say, well, I will. You will say to your students, I can be your advisor, but I won't be able to, to to attend all your meetings, and I won't be able to come every night. But you don't want to let them down. You want them to continue to be active. But I think if there's a tremendous amount of self-care that has to be exercised in this work, 
and I'm sure we can talk about that more in detail in, in a moment, but I think women of color get called into this work because it is something they feel attracted to, but you also have to set boundaries because the institution will manipulate your strength. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. So my previous university, when I got licensed as a counselor, my supervisor, so the vice president, came to me. He said, Tyranny, I know that you're now licensed. I really need for you to consider giving up two days in the Center for Student Diversity and working in the counseling center because what? we have, yes, he says, we have so many students, particularly students of color, that are coming and they are in dire need of a counselor. And I just don't think that the two white therapists are going to suffice. And so... But did he, but did he say, let me give you an additional 10000 Let me give you some more right. to do this extra work that I'm asking you to do? Absolutely not. He even prefaced it by saying, we don't have the budget he even said, this is, it was, it was so mind blowing. We don't have the budget to hire a full time staff member in the counseling center. Therefore, we have to take advantage of our current resources. We have to Wait take advantage. Wait a yes. minute. Oh, wow. Yes. But did, you, did, you, did you decline that? Like, I just need to know. That was the final straw. I was like, I, that is it. I mean, this is. I, and I was so disappointed because he was a black man. And I thought of all people, he would understand the exhaustion that we experience in this work. And not only that. What? How can I? <laughs> um, I what gave him yes. the, the, the guts to walk as a black man too, to walk up to you and say, because these two white people, these two mm. white ladies can't do their job. That's all I'm saying. I need to take advantage of you and take away right. from what you were hired to do to right. do their job. Right, right. Because he thought he and, could. He, he thought, and everybody else thought, we're going to send him because he could get her to do it. Right. Yeah. But this is also the thing, too. I think that, I mean, there's so many ways that I had to look at this afterwards. And I actually had one of my black male mentors, who was an old gentleman, say, Tyranny, you may need to consider it because it could be a leg up in the future. And I thought, is this a black male thing? Like, are you, all of y'all just in, encouraging black women to sacrifice themselves? No, I am not. I am not going to take this. Because first and foremost, what we already know is that we're already overstretched. Um, we're already underfunded in our centers, but for you to ask me to give up two days a week to go work in another office, provide them with support, that means that my office is now understaffed. Right. And, and as a director, because at the time I was a director, you're already serving as a pseudo counselor because I couldn't. I couldn't say that I was counseling students, but we know when students come into our office, we are yes. doing trauma work, we're doing career work, we're doing spiritual Absolutely. work, we're doing you know person-centered healing, we're doing all of that stuff. So, uh, and what would also be the challenge is if these were students that I was seeing in the counseling center, these are these could not be students that I would see in my office in the same capacity, right? Because 
I mean, the confidentiality would change. They probably feel uncomfortable given that they, they were just in my therapist's chair the other day, and now they're a part of Black Student Union. Right. Um, so yeah, it it was one of those moments where, first and foremost, self-advocacy came in to its fullest, because I was like, is there extra, there isn't an extra salary increase. Um, I mean, the burnout of being a therapist working with college students is already so high. And then you're also, when you do this, you're also telling those two white counselors that they don't have to work on their multicultural counseling techniques. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. So. That, um, mm, I just, hold on a minute for that. If that really speaks to, um, I, and maybe my question is, is really around how are other, how are we, what are we, are our expectations of others in higher education too high? So it's <laughs> much to expect that as black people, we would support each other re regardless of our gender identity. You know, would we support one another or, or is it okay because you already know that somebody is taxed to continue to tax them? And I think that, you know, that's a whole nother conversation about the, how, you know, black men can support black women in higher education. Um, knowing that we are all kinds of other mothers and in and, and various capacities. And so what, what drives you to continue to do this work? So I have to tell you this story. So when I was in, when I graduated from graduate school, I knew that I wanted to pursue licensure and um, in, in becoming a, license, a a licensed professional counselor. I moved to Arkansas, and um, you know I was working full time. And in the state of Arkansas, I would have needed another class to become licensed. And I was like, eh, I don't really know if I want to do that right now. It wasn't until I moved to the other the, the liberal arts college that I was mentioning a moment ago, I met a young lady, a student from Baltimore. We began to build um, great rapport. She spent a lot of time in my office. It was obvious that she was beginning to um, have an affinity for me and I had an affinity for her. So she began to open up about a lot of experiences. And when I think about, first and foremost, the resiliency of our people, I mean, that's obviously innate. But this is a young lady that in her early 20s, may have been 21 or 22 when I met her, lived in inner city Baltimore, was exposed to lead paint in an apartment when they were growing up. Um, father died similarly to the way Freddie Gray died in that he was um, thrown in the back of a Baltimore City police um, paddy wagon, became paraplegic, was paralyzed from the neck down, um, ended up dying several years later. Um, violence riddled community. Um, she also witnessed a, tr a horrific shooting like with her own eyes like right in front of her in close proximity to her and in having those conversations with her on our campus I knew she even when I encouraged her to go to the counseling center she just was very reluctant you know because the counseling center um, first of all it didn't look like her and what did it mean to go to the counseling center and share this traumatic incidents that that looked like what black people go through right this idea and so she spent time with me and that is when I knew without a doubt, I was like, I have to pursue licensure in the state of Maryland because I have to be able to provide 
students like her, individuals like her with better care. And so, so these two worlds of diversity and equity work in higher education, because I believe in the power of higher education, um, I say very often college has the power to change lives. And it does. And then this other piece of clinical mental health, there is so much that infiltrates our communities that, that alter our sense of reality. And many of us become so accustomed to struggling that we don't even know what thriving feels like. Like our students will create situations for them to struggle because that is what they're used to. And so anxiety, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, um, you know, can't be in spaces where you hear loud noises because they remind you of gunshots, um, uh, police sirens. That is so, that is normal to many of the, the individuals that I was spending time with. And so what's the driving force is that I know education has the ability to, liber to, lib um, to liberate. <clears throat> and this young lady will be graduating in a few days from college, will be the first one in her family to graduate from college. And I know she's going to go off and do some phenomenal things for her community and then impact the next generation. So I almost feel like it is my, it is my duty. It is my duty to keep, keep trotting along. Um, and now I'm in a space where I no, I no longer work exclusively with students, but now I'm in this space where I'm working with administrators and say, those policies aren't, they aren't equitable. Right. Uh, that policy is racist. Right. <laughs> or that policy um, or that statement you made was inappropriate. And this is why. Um, so I get to do that somewhat of that 35,000 foot view type stuff now. Mm -hmm. And that and that work is is really needed. And I think um, that is what what you just touched upon was something that we don't really talk a lot about um, openly in higher education is the the mental health concerns of our students, yeah. especially our students of color, and the lack of access um, not only to uh, culturally competent counseling yeah. from counselors but also uh, what seems to be a shortage of black and Latinx mm -hmm. and Asian or pan-Asian um, professionals to, that want to work in higher education and I think that, that is a, a sweet spot that um, we, we really are we are we then needed to tackle it yeah so interesting you say that I I actually just got an email day before yesterday from a college. Um, I actually was a, I was a keynote speaker at an event that they hosted. Um, and this lady found out that I was licensed and that my area of interest was, was um, uh, race-based trauma and, um, and superwoman, superwoman syndrome and like imposter syndrome, particularly in young black girls. And so she reached out to me and she said, we have this job available. <laughs> We, we really encourage you to apply for it. And granted, I, I'm not going to apply to that job, but she did, she did say their school had just got a grant to start focusing on race-based trauma, and she was interested in seeing would I be willing to come to their university and work with their faculty and staff on how to create these trauma-informed spaces. Because what you're finding now is universities – particularly these small private schools that can give students a lot of money to come, they are, they're realizing that 
they are recruiting heavily in these urban areas, but they're not prepared for what students from these urban areas are bringing to, to their college. Hello? Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're not prepared for it. I mean, kids have, I mean, you have young adults who, who are used to like sleeping on floors mm -hmm. and now you have them in a room situation where it's like, they don't know how to do this or, you know, their coping mechanisms are so different. Um, you know, students who have no concept of, of money and when they get money, they know to like send it home to families. So it's, I mean, so many different things and we have to do, well, my work is when I was working more explicitly with students, it was a lot of empowerment work, but now on the other side is it's a lot of education on like what students are bringing to the table and how do we prepare um, practitioners for what students can bring to the classroom. Yeah. Now you said something that I, 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 I will echo is that we, when we're recruiting students, we want the best of the best, get them wherever. And when they come, they come with who, who they are, completely who they are, all their intersecting identities, and then it's like, oh, well, we don't know how to provide that resource, or oh, we need to get more training on this. And I'm just like, you have to, and that's where the assessment piece for me comes in, um, conducting those needs assessment, understanding the student population that you want to bring, and what they could all possibly bring to your campus, and how do you prepare your, your faculty and staff to be open to them, to be ready to serve them when they come. And, Absolutely. And for me, you know, working, and not, you know, just be honest, we have a lot of individuals that have been there forever, or um or stuck in their ways yeah <laughs> you know regardless of the institution they're stuck in their ways and they're used to this trend and when these these new generations of students come in and they have problems and issues that they haven't seen before they don't understand why but when you're saying hey let's go to this conference let's go to this workshop let's learn about this it's like yeah i'm good where where i'm at how about we hire somebody to do that Mm -hmm. And then it becomes your whole responsibility to do that. And then when you talk about previously, you become the advisor to this, the advisor to that. And so I guess that brings me to a question of, in terms of your TED talk, talking about tracing back to your roots, and then you spoke about self-discovery mm -hmm. and how that plays a role uh, for you as a Black woman in higher education, um, especially working in um, diversity positions. Yeah. So let me let me even tell you how that TED talk even even came to be. Oh, uh, just like the life experience that led to the story that I shared on the stage. So I just graduated from college. I graduated in two thousand nine. You know, it was it was in the midst of the, of the recession, right? You know, people were losing their homes, people were losing their jobs. It was not a good time for young adults like me who wanted to go into social, social science. Like you just, people were holding on to their jobs. And so I ended up, um, I ended up being a census enumerator, which meant that I was going door to door, knocking on people's doors, saying, please complete the census form, you know, getting, Bust out people saying, who are you? I don't trust you. I already sent my form in. And one day I literally ended up in a field like in the middle of my small rural community. And um, as I was asking this gentleman questions about his census, he said, what's your name again? And I told him. And then that's when he began to tell me about how the land that we were standing on used to belong to my family. 
Mm. And, and so what was funny about it was the way the community is set up, it was essentially a fork in the road. And on one side of the road were the black Thurmans and on the other side of the road were the white Thurmans. And um, over time, you just began to see, you know, people lost land, people sold land, so on and so forth. And that catapulted my interest in learning more about my family, my roots. And so I just started interviewing elders and it just led me down this rabbit hole of more and more investigative work and more and more enlightening work on who I who I am. And um, so, you know, at that moment, I was, you know, sad and depressed that I got this college degree, but I couldn't find a job. But I was also so curious about what I was discovering with this ancestry work. So that was in 2009. And so when the TEDx opportunity came up, um, I had used some of the work that I had done individually. I had introduced it to students at Arkansas State, and we began to do ancestry workshops on campus. I was focusing on black students because I was the director of the Multicultural Center at the time, and I was linking resiliency and retention to ancestry work. So I felt that if students spent time learning about their ancestors and learning the, the, the narrative and the stories of the ancestors, they could see that they innately had that in them. So while your great-great-grandmother may not have been college educated, she still lived to 80 years old. She raised 11 children. Those 11 children went on to do X, Y, and Z things, become landowners, become school teachers, preachers, so on and so forth. So if they could have mustered the courage during a time where they definitely didn't have these opportunities. Think about what you could do, you could accomplish if, if you just, you know, grasp that concept a little greater. Um, the self-discovery piece has been life-changing too, because in doing this work, you also realize how much you've internalized racism, yeah. Yeah. right? And, and doing this work, you also realize how much work you have to do with people of color because they have internalized racism. So the ideas around um, the superiority complex and the inferiority complex. Um, but what I've also found in this work, particularly around uh, some self-discovery, is I seek refuge in tons of other black women. Mm. So this work has led me to seeing women who are like, you need, you need something to drink, right. you know, let's go to lunch. These, this is what's happening. Let me tell you, you know, I got your back, that type of thing. Um, so this, the piece about, yeah, I think I even jotted some stuff down. Oh, and, and um, uh, another piece about the self-discovery is truly consistently reevaluating my self-preservation measures and tactics mm. because it, it changes yeah. when, I thought I was pretty decent at employing coping mechanisms when I was in my previous job, but the, the racial battle fatigue was so heavy. Oh, it was so heavy that I literally could feel my spine tilting forward. I could feel my head and my neck getting heavy. It was horrible. Wow. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah. It was you, gotta awesome. unpack, you have to unpack that a little bit because I don't know if people realize the, amount of racial battle fatigue that comes um, when you work in the diversity realm yeah. um, and even how you participate in self-care around that and 
one of my mentors even told me when I was entering this, this arena, you need to take a vacation. You need to just go somewhere at the end of every semester, you know, and, and I took that to heart, but I think I need to do something like in, in the middle of it all. You mm-hmm. more than just, you, I can't get to that vacation. I mean, there has to be something, something else. So if you could unpack this idea of uh, racial battle fatigue, um, especially in working in the diversity space. Yeah, so what it looks like, feels like, and how to relieve it. <laughs> yes, there you go. Absolutely. Yeah. Racial battle fatigue feels like when your white male supervisor says to you, um, and this is this is what happened to me. He said, I have a funny story to tell you, but it may not be funny to you. So if you have to give that as a disclaimer, you already don't know. Don't, you tell, don't that tell that story. Mm-hmm. So he says to me, my children are watching America's Funniest Home Videos. And he's laughing in the midst of telling the story. My children are watching America's Funniest Home Videos. And there are these three women in the convertible. And this one lady's hair goes flying off. He says, oh, I think it was a wig. A wig, right? So I look at him and I said, I'm not sure what it was. And he said, but I, I thought about you because your hair changes so often. Wait a minute. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. I can't. Okay. Yeah. I, okay. I said to him, I said, you're right. That wasn't funny. Now, moving, moving forward with the agenda items that I came to discuss. So <laughs> that's. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Oh, wow. Really, what else can you do but treat that person? Right. There's almost, there's nothing else. Yes. So that's, that's an example, like that microaggression. Um, getting emails that say your students need to do this. And it's like, no, no, no. They're our students. Hello? Yes. yes. Our students. Yes, Absolutely. I, I mean, just, yeah, just mind-blowing rhetoric. And so I remember the same, this same person saying to me, you know, um, people, people think that, like, you're, you're distant. You're, some, you're somewhat aloof. And, I mean, I've tried to, I really try to defend you, but I think maybe you should, come around to, you should come around more and just show them that you're not that way. And I said to him, I said, the, the first time I had lunch with the entire group, a colleague made um, an inappropriate comment about other people being ghetto. And I'm not sure if you remember this, but you came to my office afterwards and you apologized on his behalf because you thought he may have offended me. And I'm not sure if you realize, at the time you all, I was the only person of color in the entire division, not just in leadership, but the division. So, um, there's only so much code switching. There's only so much, um, you know, changing who I am for the sake of the, for the group that I'm willing to do. Like the mental gymnastics is too exhausting and I'm really not that flexible anymore. So I'd rather eat lunch with people that I trust. I'd rather go off campus and, and have a private meeting, that type of thing. So that's kind of what it looks like. But what it feels like is, it feels like anxiety, but for me, it, for me, it showed up as in the mornings I was waking up with what I felt was an elephant on my chest, and I did not know. I was like, I cannot breathe. 
there were moments where I would go to the office and I would be stretching, thinking like something's wrong with my rib cage. I'm like, I can't breathe because anxiety and these other forms of illness take place in this physiological, they, they make physiological changes to your body. Um, not sleeping well, dreading going to the office, um, rethinking, retyping, restructuring sentences for the sake of not being questioned or not being interrogated or being scrutinized by, by for a decision that I made. Um, heart, the regular heart palpitations, maybe sweaty palms, um, uh, being like you are an ambassador for your entire race. So mind you, I'm saying all these things to you and I'm a licensed counselor and I'm dealing with this and I'm like, my coping mechanisms were off, but it, there's a lot of research on how um, people of color resist mm -hmm. in predominantly white spaces. So even when, where I, when I wear my hair curly or when I wear my hair straight, when I would tie my hair up in a headscarf or when I would um, you know, wear my African print attire or something like that. So I mean, all these things that you have to contend with when you're in those spaces where people want to uh, I was also known as the girl who dressed cute. I like I wore cute clothes, and you know, there's a psychological issue with that too, because you're like, I'm this way, I'm dressed this way so that I don't have to. Like, I'm over exerting, I'm overcompensating, so I don't have to deal with all that other stuff that comes along with the racism in this space. Yeah. And sometimes you have to dress up just to make yourself feel better to contend with the issues in the space. Um. So how did I how did I cope or how did I push forward? I actually took full advantage of EAP, the Employee Assistance Program, and I began to talk really heavily with um, a licensed counselor about about racial battle fatigue, about anxiety, about breathing exercises, about um, what culture this had already like what culture was created in this in this particular organization that really was not ready for any type of diversity work. Like they just weren't ready because uh, they couldn't contend with their own racism. So I had to do a lot of affirming work and knowing that I wasn't, because there were moments where I'm like, am I going crazy? Mm -hmm. Like what's going on? But I was really thankful for having a supportive community. Um, Self-care looked like bubble baths and massages and facials, but also being able to say no to things on campus because I, I just could not continue to stretch myself in that capacity. Mm -hmm. I'm just hearing you talk is, 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 is bringing back <clears throat> memories uh, for myself. Um, one, attending uh, PWIs, and then, uh, as I stated before, um, my first professional position in higher ed, being at a small PWI, and everything that you just talked about, I experienced, but I always thought I was the only one who was experiencing it. And so, in my mind, I said, okay, this is all in your head. This is not really what's going on. Just push mm -hmm. through it. Just make it happen. Um, but the more I got into higher ed and, and talking with different um, black women, um, especially those that have worked at PWIs in similar situations, it wasn't just we all kind of felt the same. And it's just I don't want to say – I don't want to use the word refreshing because it's not refreshing – uh, but I want to say, how do we, how do we get to a place 
So I'm always thinking about the people that come after me, right? Mm -hmm. How do we get to a place to show the people, the young women, black women that want to do this work, that they'll have their moments, their ups and downs, but how do we instill in them that perseverance, that, that peace, as you stated before, of our ancestors that is already within us. We just need to, you know, pull it out for that in terms of self-discovery. How do we instill that in those, those individuals that are coming after us without stressing ourselves out <laughs> um, doing that? I'm going to be honest with you, Dr. K. Um, there are a multitude of things, but I'm, I read this quote on Instagram yesterday. I think it was, XO Nicole on Instagram and it said stop advising young black professionals to endure mental stress at work because of some shiny pot of gold at the end of the dis disillusional rainbow instead advise them to network learn as much as they can and move yes yeah, yeah. and I'm no longer interested in hearing people hurting and me saying bit like bear bear it it'll get better right. there, i mean there's there's no denying it will get better but the situation the situation doesn't typically get better you typically get stronger yeah now I, I i will say this the young lady that is doing the work in my old college at my, my old university she may not be dealing with the same issues i dealt with because they end up terminating an individual but there has to be strategic intentional changes made for organizations to for them to shift yeah. but for us as participants in these structures i think that we have to be willing to there are a few things we have to be willing to call a thing a thing as Ian van zant says you have to call a thing a thing that's right um but there may be some times too where you have to you have to look around and say is it safe for me to be this way at this moment because mm -hmm. that's that's just a, an assessment right that's like bystander intervention one-on-one and if if it is not a safe space for you to um, make that move and I don't mean like make the move like exit I mean if it's not a safe space for you to operate and be your most authentic self or to call people to the carpet then it may be something um, you need to uh, internally sh you need to share with mentors and advisors but I'm gonna say move mm -hmm. you, move you I I would always say I'm gonna be like LeBron and I'm taking my talents to South Beach right. because <laughs> because you know when you when you have a desire for a championship you need to be with a championship game um, a championship winning team yes and and sometimes people are like we're just making strides mediocrity is okay yeah. and yeah I, I'm, I'm not interested in that so I'm a big basketball person, <laughs> and I felt that that that's so, I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that if you want to be a champion, you have to go where the champions are. Yeah, and that's not saying that where you are, there are no champions. They're just not ready to play on the court. Absolutely, I needed to hear that. Okay. Absolutely. I made the transition to my current job about six months ago and I made the trend. I'm going to be honest with you, even though I went through what I went through at the previous um, university and I had some skepticism about transition because I wasn't sure if the timing was right, even though there were times when I was like, I'm ready to get out of here. Right. 
but I transitioned to my new job because it was good to be in an organization that had a vision mm -hmm. and they weren't just talking about DEI work. They were practicing it. Right. And, you know, we had, um, well, we have, I just had, we have faculty going through year long cohort model styles to learn culturally responsive teaching. Mm -hmm. We have, um, uh, we have like, every part of, of our, 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 our faculty syllabi must include all the resources as it pertains to not only support for students and academic realm, but they have to have access to disability services, help link, and know that help link can provide them with money and services if they, they need it, and the food pantry. Um, we are also, I mean, we're a community college, so we do a lot of outreach into the community, and I'm fortunate enough to be in a county that is uh, that is partnered recently with the Racial Equity Institute. I moved to a county that is now invested in racial justice. Um, the county that I, that I work in has partnered with the Racial Justice Institute, and their entire county from um, defects to, to police to education to the health center they're all beginning to, to take a look at their practices to ensure that they are equitable and racially justed, uh, just minded okay so um, one last question so we hear a lot or if you're in the higher education space you hear a lot of especially newer professionals or even those that are entry to mid-level who want to come into the diversity space and they're like eager and excited i want to be in diversity um we hear it a lot what advice would you give to someone wanting to come into the higher education realm of diversity so I get this question often because I have so many of students that reach out to me that say, you know, Miss Tyranny, I want to do that work. I want to do what you did. As a matter of fact, I'm mentoring four of them right now that are individuals that are interested in going into multicultural affairs or diversity work. And what I share with, what I say to them many times is that you're going to have to perk up your spidey senses. And you're gonna have to be able to call out, can I curse? <laughs> Bullshit when you see it. Yeah. Because one of the things that these organizations will loop you into is that they'll sell you this dream and then you'll get into the job and you realize that none of that exists. Exactly. So having mentors to help you figure out the nonsense is going to be imperative to your success. So when you go in for a job interview and they say stuff like, um, we are working towards an inclusive and inclusive environment. We've had some challenges, yet we're looking to create da-da-da-da. You already know they're looking for someone to do it. Right. That is why this position is available. And because you are fresh out of graduate school, they can give you the least amount of money and work you for the most. Mm. And um, when you when you visit schools or when you tour these campuses and um, they don't have like diversity statements on their website or when their diversity statements include things such as intellectual diversity. I mean, which is that there's nothing wrong with intellectual diversity, but that's also key word for saying we don't have a lot of racial or gender or sexual orientation or religious diversity, but we have a lot of diversity in thought. Wow. <laughs> so um, oh, yeah. knowing questions to ask and knowing when to fish out the nonsense is going to be imperative. In addition to that, 
when you are on your interviews or your searches, most of the time in higher ed, at least from my experience, when you go on these job interviews, they will have you meet with the team and they'll also have you meet with some students. Ask the students because they're, they're the ones who have nothing to lose. Right. They're going to be honest. They're going to say, you are the third person in this position in the last two and a half years. They're going to say, the last person that was in this position um, was here five and six nights a week and she was overworked and underappreciated. So you have to be able to ask, is that the expectation? Because if so, these are my boundaries. Right. These are my expectations of you as an organization. So your spidey senses are gonna have to be um, very receptive, that's one thing. The other piece is, are there individuals on your campus that you see in higher leadership, in higher leadership um, positions? Because that's going to matter. Do you see, um, is the only person of color in a vice president of equity and inclusion position or the only person of color on the president's cabinet, the, the chief diversity officer, or is the director of the vice president of finance also a person of color, or is it a woman? If diversity matters, then it should matter from the top to the bottom. Hmm. Um, I, I have another thing too. I had a colleague, I was emailing her on a Tuesday and I got an email on a Thursday that she died on a Wednesday. Whoa. So I, so I couldn't believe it because I was like, no, I just emailed her on Tuesday. We were just emailing on Tuesday. And now on Thursday, I get, because uh, um, I'm a part of this listserv, that she had died the day, that Wednesday. And I couldn't wrap my brain around that. Like she, she died and I was just talking to her on Tuesday. Right. And we as a committee, like we sent flowers to our, um, to our funeral. I keep a pulse on what's happening in my industry. So I'm on higher ed jobs often. I look at what's going on, what's available. Her job was posted on higher ed jobs not too long after she died. And it had been demoted to a coordinator position. So wow. I have to say to people, wow. when you do this work, just understand that it, it is a labor of love. It is emotionally laborious but you cannot hold it by yourself. The organization has to be able to posture, yeah. posture you for success and you going in need to know what that means for you. Yeah. You know, cause some places will say, well, racial diversity is our main, the main issue or you are what we're really rooting for, but you get into the job and all they want to talk about is sexual assault and victims rights. You're like, mm. that's, not that there's not that anything's wrong with that, but like, no, I, I applied for the job because I really want to talk about racial justice um, and colleges that are talking about that, and particularly they're being led by some of their students. Wow. That you've given us. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's great advice. That's great advice. So we always ask our guests a couple of questions before. Um, before we let them, them before we end. And so one, the first question is, um, is there a woman that you would like to celebrate? Yeah, there is. And it's the young lady that I was sharing um, earlier. Her name is Jasmine. And um, Jasmine will be graduating in a few weeks. And so when I think about the... I think about how she's impacted my life and how she's contributed to me walking in my purpose. I, I, I'm so grateful. But when I say like immensely talented, 
incredibly eager. Um, the resiliency is paramount. An ambassador for change. I know that she she's from Baltimore, so I just have this feeling that she is going to be a revolutionary. She's going to be a revolutionary leader in this particular community. And um, that means a lot because many times we tell students when they go off to college that they're supposed to go away from their community. And I think for some of us, we need to consider going back to our communities because the, the next generation needs to see what hope and prosperity can look like. Whew, that's chills. The other question is, um, what, does, what does this podcast space mean to you? <laughs> that's such a great question. Okay, so I love podcasts. I listen to them on my way to the office. I listen to them um, on my way home. Um, not in the podcast space, but this is for black women. And uh, I think that there is an energy. There is a, there is a light that is in us. Um, I actually was talking to a girlfriend the other day and she said, we have so much power. That's why they try to keep us, uh, keep us to the right. Or they try to keep us down. And I just, I'm just immensely proud to be a black woman and to be able to share space with other women who are trotting along this course in higher education, who believe in the power of, um, who believe in the power of higher education and um, are dedicated because I'll, I say this often to students aren't mandated to go to college. They aren't, they come to college voluntarily mm -hmm. and it is our duty once they get there to help them be successful in whatever that means for them and help them get a degree. Right. So my, I believe my existence matters on my campus. I believe my existence matters in my living space. Um, and it's good to be able to know that my existence matters in this podcast space too. So people can hear my story and also the story of, of many other black women like yourselves, because we are a phenomenal, phenomenal, um, group of women group of people group, group of human beings right yeah and, and finally music and so we have a a, <laughs> list, a playlist of, uh, i think it's on spotify yes Spotify. and, and we want to know what contra what is that what are those songs that that get you get you going we want to add your music yes. to our we, we want to jam to what you jam it to <laughs> Y'all, okay, right now I have Lizzo's album on repeat. Yes! Have you guys heard Lizzo's album? Oh my gosh. I listen, listen, yes. I listen. Yeah, I need to listen to this album because I that, have not. I listened, I, was, I just got back from uh, Miami and on the plane ride to and from, she was in my ear. Like, yes. Dope. She's dope. Is there a particular song on this album? That the we whole album. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to say the whole album, man. The whole That's album. You know, there was an article published recently. I didn't even read the whole article, but I just saw the title of it. And it says, Why Lizzo's the Next Beyonce. And I'm like, no, Lizzo is just the next Lizzo. Like, right. she's charting her own course. I mean, that whole... That whole world of, like, I'm fat, I'm sexy, I'm beautiful, I'm brown, I'm... Oh, it is just, but you know, what's so odd is in her interviews, people are always like, where did you get this confidence from? Right. And right. to be perfectly honest, I grew up around women that look like her and it just was natural. 
I wasn't like, my auntie's so confident because she's chunky. No, she just was. Yeah, exactly. She just was. Yeah, it's, yeah, Lizzo's album is on repeat right now. Mm-hmm. She got some bangers. That's, yeah. She does. And I actually bought tickets to a concert for September. Oh, well, somebody's ahead of the curve. So are there any other? Well, since we got Lizzo's whole album, I guess you don't have anything, any other um, songs. (laughs) Unfortunately, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right, Miss Tierney, we thank you for um, your time and your wisdom and expertise and joining us on the podcast. Absolutely. Uh, Where can people find you if they want to find you in the interwebs? Yes. So my, um, you can find me on Instagram at tyranny T that's T I R R A N Y T. Um, that's on Instagram. My name is tyranny Thurmond on Facebook. And I also, you can follow my consulting page on Instagram as well. And it's Edoltu. That's I D A L T U. Um, consulting. Um, you can um, follow us on Instagram. Thank you for listening to episode four of Black Women Voices. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with our guest, Tyranny Thurman. I don't know about you, but as someone who works in the diversity space, I got a lot out of our conversation. This is definitely one of those podcasts that you will want to listen to again. I'm telling you, if this is your first time listening, please check out our first three episodes available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Also, please don't forget to rate, review, and share the podcast. We want this platform to reach as many people as possible. Thanks for listening, and we will chat with you real soon.